yeah, just to put it simply, I'm, I'm really thankful for uh, the relationship that uh, I personally have been able to have with, with uh, Josh and Camille and by extension with, uh, with the family here at, at Big Rapids First Baptist. Um, and really thankful that Josh gets to be up in Traverse City uh, today. Uh, I think the storm, is the storm heading that way? Yeah, so hits us first, and then they get to experience it after, after us. And so I'm excited that uh, they get to uh, experience Josh's preaching, I believe, right now. Yeah, he's probably in the second time through his sermon. Um, and uh, the verdict is still out whether it's going to be a good experience for you, but uh, we're going we're gonna to do this. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, like we just read, and we're jumping right into the middle of a book. Uh, so let me, let me just state from the beginning here, uh, I believe one of Paul's main goals in the text here uh, is to encourage us. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4 that um, because of this ministry that we have by the mercy of God, therefore do not lose heart. And uh, as I've been thinking about that clear statement, uh, do not lose heart. Uh, Do not give up. Do not be discouraged. Uh, That is simply put, no matter what circumstances we're going in, that is something that I'm guessing all of us can relate to, that place of saying, man, I feel like giving up. Uh, I feel like I've lost heart. I feel like I'm discouraged. And so the overall goal of, of, of the sermon today is really the goal of the passage, is, to, um, is to, to, to strengthen us again to keep on running the race, keep on walking the journey, whatever that is that God has called us to. Um, with that being said, we are jumping into a book that uh, is pretty complex. Uh, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinthians. Uh, it's like the it's 2 Corinthians, but it's the third or fourth letter that he wrote. He references his, these various letters in the text. And what, what becomes apparent is that there's some conflict going on. There's some stuff that we don't understand that is going on. And so the letter uh, is sometimes hard to understand because he is addressing things that we have no idea what's going on. And so as I was trying to think of an illustration to sort of set the, set the stage, um, jumping into 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 would be similar to, because I know we have this experience all the time, of uh, being, uh, going up in a helicopter and then being dropped off in the middle of the wilderness, not knowing where you're at, and being forced to fend for yourself. You have to look around and you have to figure out the surroundings and you have to make sense of it. Um, maybe another illustration, let's say you're trying to learn a new language. Instead of taking classes, you move to a foreign city and you totally immerse yourself in, in, that, uh, in that culture. Uh, it'd be kind of overwhelming. You'd have to learn a lot in order to, to live. Um, or maybe the scariest illustration for me, uh, you are immersed into a conflict between two parties that you know nothing about the background. Uh, there are different things at play, and you have two people saying, hey, I'm right, I'm right, fix this, but you don't know the context at all. That is similar to how it is when we jump right into the middle of this book. Uh, there are a lot of things going on. There's a lot of context here. And we better ask some good questions. We better work hard at creating, uh, understanding what's going on, or else we might get ourselves into some trouble. Uh, so, with that being said, you just heard the passage read. And in a nutshell, what Paul is doing here is he's comparing the new covenant. This is the covenant through Jesus' blood. This is the ministry by the Spirit. It's the ministry that Paul has been entrusted with. It's the ministry that we have. He's comparing the new covenant uh, with the old covenant. This is the one that's marked by Moses, and so you see him talking about Moses a lot. And his big point is that the Spirit's new covenant ministry that we have is just way stinking better than the old covenant. 
It's just way better. And and central to his argument, if you look in chapter 3, verse 16, is that in the new covenant, this veil, we'll talk about the veil, this veil has been removed. So when one turns to the Lord, we are now unveiled. We have unveiled faces. And this new unveiled reality, according to Paul, uh, makes all the difference. And so it raises a bunch of questions, right? What is the veil? Why is he talking about Moses? What does this have to do with us today? Um, So as we set the stage, as we try to understand our context, uh, we're going to go back to Exodus just for a little bit. We're going to look at Exodus, and we're going to think back to this time in which God gave the law to Moses. And this is the beginning of the Old Covenant. Uh, And if you know much about Exodus, um, the name of the book, it refers to uh, that awesome movie that was made with all the special effects, and God brings the people of Israel out of the nation of Israel in a pretty miraculous way. Uh, And yet, if if you've read the book of Exodus, you know that that's just the beginning. Uh, God brings them out of this nation, and then he brings them to Mount Sinai. And if you remember what happens at Mount Sinai, this is where God uh, takes Moses up to the top of the mountain, and he gives him uh, the Ten Commandments. He gives him the covenant. And what is the covenant? It's really this this agreement to say, This is how you are going to be my people. This is how I'm going to live in your midst. This is how you're going to relate to me. And uh, the story is quite convoluted, quite crazy. Shenanigans ensue. Things like golden calves are made. God sees that happening, and he decides he's going to destroy the people. He's going to start afresh with Moses. Moses says, please don't do that. Uh, he goes down and sees it, and he gets angry. He throws the, the tablets, and they break. And then he, he has the Levites kill a bunch of people. Then God sends a plague, and the plague wipes out a bunch of people. It's just craziness. And yet, we end up in chapter 34 of Exodus. And, and in this chapter, God is at a place where, in spite of what the Israelites have done, he is reaffirming this covenant. He's saying, I'm going to give it to you again. Moses, you, you broke those tablets. I'm going to give you new tablets. And so Moses meets with God, and God gives him a new set of stone tablets. Um, and I'm going to start to read uh, in verse 29 of Exodus 34. And just listen carefully. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel, they saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what's happening here? It's actually pretty crazy. Moses meets with the Lord, and literally the glory of the Lord shines on Moses it transforms his face, and he begins to reflect that glory. Uh, and he, the funny thing is, he's not aware of it. So he walks out of this meeting with God. He walks down the mountain to take these tablets to share with the people what God said to him. And I'm imagining as he's walking down, he's like, hey, Aaron. And Aaron uh, kind of 
walks away, and he's like, Aaron, come over here, and, 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 and Aaron cowers, and Moses gets annoyed and says, Aaron, what, what are you doing? Come, come over here, and Aaron says, Moses, uh, do you know that your face is glowing? Um, no, I didn't. Well, it is, and it's kind of scary. That's why everyone is running from you, uh, and so he calls the people. Uh, they finally come, and he shares with them what, what God has for them, and this is where the cultural shift is, is, is interesting because I, I think if I saw someone with a glowing face, I would be taking out my phone and taking pictures. I think this would be pretty cool. Um, but it terrified them. They saw this, and they didn't know what to do with it, and it terrified them. So Moses, what he does after he shares this law, because this glory is so unsettling to the people, he does what a good leader does. He identifies what's distracting people, and he covers it. He, he blocks it off. He puts a veil on his face. He covers this glory. But notice in what happens, because he, he has to go back up to God, and he has to get more law from him. He, has to, he, he meets with God again, but he takes the veil off, because when he's with God, he doesn't need that veil. Then he leaves. He comes back. He shares what God has for him. And then what does he do again? He puts the veil back on. I'm sure that cleared up everything for you. I'm sure it answered all your questions. Well, this is the backdrop for our text in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. This is what Mo, uh, Paul is talking about. And what Paul is saying is that, that right now in this new covenant, that, that, that we, if we've run to Christ by faith, that's what we exist under. That's how we've been brought into relationship with Jesus. Under that new covenant, we have a way better uh, scenario than the Israelites do, than Moses did. What's better about it? Well, in short, what we're going to talk about today is that when we turn to the Lord through Christ, our faces, unlike Moses's, they've been unveiled. And when that happens, when that happens, three realities are now true. One of them, we can freely behold the glory of the Lord. Two, we can increasingly reflect the glory of of the Lord, the image of the Lord, and three, we can openly proclaim Jesus as Lord. And so we're going to just talk about each of these. And again, it bears mentioning that Paul thinks that as we talk about these, as we press into them, a few things are going to happen. So verse uh, 12 of chapter 3, he thinks that pressing into these will increase our boldness. He thinks in verse 17 that they'll lead to greater freedom. He thinks that according to verse 1 of chapter 4, that they'll keep us from losing heart. So on the one hand, these are things that as we talk about them, you'll be like, okay, yeah, I've heard these often. On the other hand, Paul wants us to press into them and realize they're not just Christian platitudes or theological niceties. These, these are realities that in Christ are true for us. That whether we feel it or not, whether we see it or not, if we've run to Christ by faith, we have now been changed, and this power is at work by the Spirit to continue changing us. Okay, so let's just dive right into this. Verse 18, uh, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. And so in this new covenant that we are a part of, we can now freely behold the glory of the Lord. When we turn to the Lord through Christ, the veil is taken away, and so our faces are now turned to the Lord, and we are beholding his glory freely, and openly, there's nothing between us. And this is a, a stunning fact that, at least for me, I grew up in the church, and I hear that, and immediately I'm not struck with, oh, that's stunning. 
And it's just like, yeah, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so we need to do a little work of digging into it and understanding to a greater degree why it is so stunning. So we're going to think way back to how we were created for a second. Friends, we were created for glory. We were created uh, to actually walk with the Lord, to behold him face to face, much like friends do. As such, we've been hardwired to crave glory, to hunger for it, to long for it. And we found that in this face-to-face relationship with the King of glory, the one who created us. Yet, when our forebears sinned, Paul says that in Romans 3, that they fell short of that glory. Consequently, everyone else fell short of that glory as well. Now, what didn't change is that hunger for glory. We were still hardwired as people who find our fulfillment in God, the one who is the Lord of glory. But what happened is we became unfit to see his glory. So here's another way of looking at it. Whereas before the fall, uh, God's glory was joy, it was flourishing, it was life, it was fulfillment for us. After the fall, God's glory was terror. It was condemnation towards us. It became dangerous for us. So now fast forward to the Israelites in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai, and it was not safe for them. It was not safe for them to behold God's face. You think of uh, as kids, you look up at the sun, and uh, especially when there's an eclipse, you think it's okay to look at it, uh, but there's so many warnings. Don't look at the sun. It will destroy your eyesight. Much in that same way, God's unbridled glory in the presence of his people, uh, it was just too bright. It was too glorious. The Israelites could not behold the glory of the Lord without being consumed. And that gives you a little bit of an understanding why they would freak out when they see this glory shining off of Moses' face. So even secondhand glory is something that is not a cause for rejoicing. It's not a novelty. It's not something to go tell your friends about. It is something to run from. So Moses covers his face with a veil. But when Paul writes about this veil, he sees it as more than just a piece of cloth that's covering Moses' face. This is a, it's a representation of a barrier between God's presence and his people. And that veil is both external, but it's also internal. And so Paul talks about this. It's external. I mean, this is what we see. It's blocking the Israelites from their physical sight by covering their face. But it's also internal in that it blocks the Israelites from spiritual sight by covering their hearts. And make no mistake, the internal led to the external. It was because their hearts were veiled. You could see it in verse 14 of the text, that their minds were made dull. It's because their hearts and their minds were veiled that Moses then veiled his face. Well, why? Think of it this way. Because even the reflection of God's glory off of Moses' face was a glory that condemned the people. It produced fear in them. It reminded them that this was a God who was holy, that sin and uncleanness and impurity, it was burned up, it was consumed in his presence. And so that that glory meant that they were under his judgment, that they were condemned. 
And so this glory, it did not cause them to turn towards him. It caused them to turn away from him. They were hardened to the redemptive thrust of this law that God was giving them. There's an author named N.T. Wright, and he says it this way. The law really would reveal God's glory. It really would point forward like a great story in search of an ending to the coming of the Messiah. But for those whose hearts are not ready for it, it's veiled. So friends, that internal veil, that hardness of heart, it still exists today. It is the condition of every human heart apart from God. You see, we are not just a people who can hunger for God's glory and then ascend up into the spiritual stratosphere and be enlightened and experience him in all his glory because we are shrouded in darkness. We're condemned by our hardness. This is not something we can achieve. This is where the good news comes in. Author Michael Horton says it this way. He says, God does not invite us to discover him in his glory, but to meet him where he has promised to be gracious. And his promise to be gracious, it's met with this resounding yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. He is the only one who can remove the veil, and when he does, everything changes. So before and after. Before Jesus removes the veil over our hearts, we are just like the Israelite people in the story. We're afraid to see God. We're afraid to be seen by him because he is dangerous to us. Our hearts are hardened towards seeing and responding to his glory, so we are veiled. We're cut off from seeing it. But then after, after Jesus removes the veil, after we turn to the Lord, we're actually like Moses in this story. God invites us to meet with him and to experience his glorious and his gracious presence, not as a danger, but as real, true life. So we can freely, without hindrance or fear, behold his glory. So this is why it's so stunning. This is why it is actually quite crazy that we can behold the glory of the Lord and not be consumed. It's crazy. Somehow the hardness of our hearts has been removed by Jesus. Now, if this is true, think about how it changes things. It literally changes everything, so we're not going to be able to talk about everything. But two things came to my mind. That, that, that I, I hope as you reflect on this, more things come to your mind, but I'll, sh- I'll share with you these two things. Um, one thing that came to my mind is how this perspective changes how I view things like reading the Bible. Uh, I grew up in the church, and so uh, like a good church kid, um, you had your devotions uh, five times a week, and if I could get a good streak, I got a candy bar after a few weeks. And uh, we built this habit of the word of God is a good thing. And so you, you get into it. And, and it, I thought about it in terms of practicing, of doing, of learning. That's how I approach the Bible. And, and those are all good categories. But what if before I approached it as something to do, to learn from, what if I viewed it as a place where I see the glory of the Lord? What if I come to the Bible recognizing that God, through Christ, has welcomed me in so there's no veil anymore, there's no barrier. I see his presence, and so I go to his word to actually see him. Now, yes, what's going to flow from that is the learning and the doing and the practicing. What if I started from a place 
of seeing God, then that leads to transformation. Another thing that hit me was how this reality uh, can, can, can minister to our hearts in those times when God feels far away, when he feels distant, when I'm having a hard time seeing him at work and understanding what he's doing. What this reality reminds me of and what it can remind you of is independent of how I feel, here's what's true. I don't relate to God under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, if I felt like he was distant, someone would be like, well, no duh, you feel that way because he is distant. Like there is something cutting you off from him. Under the new covenant though, when I feel that way, I can bring this glorious reality to bear that he is not far away. That there is no barrier between me and him. I relate to God through Christ under the new covenant and I've been brought near. I can behold his glory. There is freedom from the spirit. So that's the first reality that we want to press into. We can can freely behold the glory of the Lord. And it continues though in 2 Corinthians 3.18 I'm going to read that verse again, and I'm going to continue to the end of that verse. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So not only are we beholding the glory of the Lord freely, but now we are reflecting that glory more and more. We're increasingly reflecting the image of the Lord. And again, this is pretty crazy. We're going to follow the same pattern we did with the first point. We're going, to, we're going to talk about how we're created and how sin messed everything up. So not only were we created for glory, uh, but we were created as image bearers of God. We, we saw his glory, we hungered for it, and then we reflected it. That's what it means to be an image bearer. So that, in a sense, all of creation would look at us and say, oh, that's what God's like. Yeah, that's what it means to be an image bearer. We reflect him. So Adam and Eve, they walked with him, they were in relationship with him, they saw his glory, and they imaged him. They reflected him. But then what happened after the fall? Well, this relationship was severed, right? And so since they didn't have this relationship anymore, they did not see the glory of God anymore, thus their reflection of God became diminished, became distorted. I'm sure you have seen one of those funhouse mirrors before. Uh... I have sort of a love-hate relationship with them. Uh, it's a lot of fun to stand in front of those mirrors and to see uh, your, your, your features all stretched and pulled and uh, much, much laughing ensues. Uh, but maybe it's the same principle with clowns for some reason. I'm not sure. But there's something like uh, horrifying to me about it as well. To look into this mirror and you see yourself, but it's not yourself. It's you looking back, but it's not you. Your features are distorted. And so there's some way in which, like this funhouse mirror, we still reflect God. People still see his glory reflected from us, but it's distorted. What that means is we're created as glory reflectors. But what Paul says in Romans 1 is that we exchange that glory. We took the glory of God, we exchanged it for glory that comes from created things, from lesser images. And really, friends, this is what, what idolatry is. It's, it's giving glory, and it is reflecting the glory 
of any other image, any other thing besides the one we are created to reflect. Now fast forward to the Israelites. Remember, they're just coming off of this golden calf incident that we referenced where they literally exchanged the glory of the living God who was on that mountaintop that they were right at the foot of. He was literally up at the top of that with Moses. They exchanged that glory for a hand-fashioned metal image of a cow. So we see the distortion already in effect. Their hearts were hardened. They longed for glory, but they created an image of a lesser thing as a way of reflecting that, and they distorted God's glory. They fell short of it. But you have Moses up at the top of the mountain. And he's been graciously invited to meet with God and to see his glory. And he begins to reflect that glory. His face is glowing. He doesn't know it, but everyone else around him does. And there's two problems that are brought up at this point. First problem is this. Uh, God's glory is reflecting on Moses, but there's a whole nation of people. So at this point in time, there's only one person who can see the glory of the Lord and be changed by it. Everyone else can't. The second problem is that this glory fades away. The glory on Moses' face fades away over time. And so the longer he was away from God's presence, the less his face shone. Now, back to verse 18 in our text. When Jesus removes the veil, we behold the glory of the Lord. We're being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so in contrast to Moses, what this means is that in the new covenant, this glory does not fade away. How can that be? Well, think of it this way. Moses was in the presence of the Lord. When he's with him, receives glory. When he walks away from the Lord, uh, it's kind of like he has the residual effect of that glory on his face. So Moses is sort of like a rechargeable battery that when he's with the Lord, he's in the, the charging station, and then he's pulled out, and from the moment he is pulled out of that station, when the moment he's out of the Lord's presence, uh, it's just a matter of time before that glory fades away because he's not in the presence of the Lord anymore. New covenant, though. This is what's so beautiful. What is true in the new covenant is that the Spirit of the Lord is working inside of us. And so, when we come to Jesus by faith, in effect, we never leave the presence of the Lord. We behold the Lord. The Spirit is at work in our lives. We are sharing His glory. We are being changed to look like Him, to reflect Him. In a sense, we're being restored to what we were created for. We are being restored to live as fully human image bearers of the living God. So I guess my question to you is, do you you see this? Do you understand this? Do you you understand this new reality in Christ, that as we behold God's glory, the Spirit is at work in making us glorious? But it gets better. It's not just Moses anymore. Verse 18 and we all with unveiled faces. So it's all of us, all of us who have run to Christ by faith, all of us who are children of God, we are becoming glorious 
degree by degree. And I think this, this has radical implications for how we exist as a body. So, so I, I don't worship with you on a, daily, on a weekly basis. I live up north, um, but I have a local community. And so, so as, as I look out on that community, and even as I look out at you, not even knowing you, and as you look back at me, and as you look at each other, this is, this is how N.T. Wright says it. Because everybody is looking at somebody else in whose heart and life the Spirit has been at work in. To heal, to soften, to change, to give life. In other words, to give glory. So when Paul says we all with unveiled faces are being transformed into the same image, he's talking about the way that we gaze at each other as we see the life-giving Spirit in the faces of our fellow Christians. So friends, brothers and sisters, each of you, as you behold the glory of the Lord, as the Spirit transforms you, each of you help the rest of us see God's glory. Now what, what if we looked at each other that way? What if we had eyes to see the glory of God in the face of our brother and our sister next to us, even if we don't like them, even if we're in conflict? I think that would have dramatic implications for how church is done. So follow what's happening as we freely behold the glory of the Lord. We're reflecting his image. And remember, it's not us. It's actually Jesus. And so this is the third new covenant reality. It's that we can openly proclaim Jesus as Lord. So whatever else the old covenant was, it was definitely not characterized by boldness, by openness. Yes, Moses did see the glory of the Lord, Yes, it was real, but he was forced to cover it up. Moses was constrained in his ministry. Now contrast that with the new covenant. We are not constrained. We freely see the glory of the Lord. We increasingly reflect the image of the Lord. And so we're marked by openness and by light. We are unveiled. And if we are unveiled, then that means that our ministry, as we as we live into and as we proclaim the gospel, our ministry is also unveiled. We can proclaim the gospel openly. When we share the glory of this gospel with others, and Paul's talking about this in these verses in chapter 4, we do not have to resort to deception or trickery, manipulation. We don't have to somehow make the text shine in order to get people's attention. We don't have to uh, elevate certain phrases and keep down certain phrases in order to not offend. All we have to do is openly deliver the truth. All we have to do is clearly lay our lives before God and before others. So New Covenant ministry, Paul says, is the open statement of the truth. And so I've been thinking in terms of like what marks the, the, the broader evangelical church culture in our day and age. It's kind of sobering. I was thinking of some of the voices that, that have the microphone, that have the spotlight. And I guess I wonder, are, are those preachers and teachers, are they marked by this kind of open-handed, open-hearted, plainly spoken ministry? Or are they more marked by slick phrase-turning, manipulative, showy speeches that dazzle in awe. Could it be that our proneness to both 
participate in that kind of ministry and also to prop up that kind of ministry. Could it be that that shows that we don't understand the true spiritual dynamics at work? Because Paul says that if we were to understand that underneath all the words and phrases that we use, that there is this, this spiritual reality where the human heart is still veiled to this day. And that veil is there. It's cutting us off from God. We, we cannot turn to him in our own power. We are hardened to it. And not only that, but Paul says the power of the God of this world, Satan, is cutting us off. He is working to blind our eyes. If we truly understood this, wouldn't we realize no amount of human words, skill, cleverness, oratorical dazzle can remove that veil? That kind of showy, humanly skillful ministry, it, it reflects a certain kind of glory, but it is not the kind of glory that can remove spiritual veils. The whole point Paul's making, that there is one who can. It's Jesus. So if we summarize everything up to this point, follow this. We're in the new covenant. The veil has been removed by Jesus. Now we can freely behold his glory, as we behold him, the Spirit is transforming us degree by degree to actually look like him. And as we're beholding his glory, we're becoming more glorious. But it's not our glory. It's Jesus' glory. Everything is by him and everything points to him. As Brian Chapel says, everything good in me, Jesus did. So while we become more glorious, we're not pointing people to ourselves. That would, that would defeat the purpose altogether. We are signposts. We're reflecting the glory of another. So we're pointing people to the one who never fell short of God's glory. We're pointing people to the one who perfectly obeyed the Father, the one who walked the road to the cross and the grave, the one who ripped apart another veil, the temple's veil, making access into God's holy presence, the one who defeated death who rose to new life, the one who reversed the curse, the one who is the new Adam, the perfect human, the exact representation, the very image of the living God. This is the one that we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus. And when we openly proclaim him as Lord, because he has removed the veil and because it's his face that we gaze upon, it's his image that we are being changed into degree by degree. Because of that, then we think about our ministry again. We don't have to augment the message. We don't have to prop it up. We don't have to make it shine because it is already glorious. We simply need to speak it. Simply need to proclaim it. Simply need to bear witness to it. Okay, so I'm almost done. As we wrap things up, just remind you again of one of Paul's purposes for writing this letter. I mentioned it earlier. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Friends, Paul didn't want us to lose heart. He didn't want us to give up. And through the Spirit of God, Paul has the same goal for our lives. So I don't know what's going on right now in your lives. I think I know maybe two or three of your names. I'd like to know more of them after this. But the beauty of as we open up the word together is that the spirit is at work and he knows you deep down even better than you know yourself. So I guess the question I would have, are, are, are you at that place 
Are you at that place to where you're tempted to give up, to throw in the towel? Maybe it's a pattern of sin in your life that is just, it just keeps knocking you down. And you've been longing for God to change you in that area, and yet, man, you're starting to doubt that it can actually happen. Maybe it's a relationship that you have. Maybe there's, there's conflict that feels just like this has been going on and on. As I heard Jeff talk about the history of this church, and it's unfortunately the, 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 the history of many churches. It'd be easy to look at that and say, man, uh, yeah, we say that we believe God changes things, but man, we have, a, we have a pattern that shows otherwise. These things can't change. Well, speaking as one who, in different context, but speaking as one who's been, who's been tempted to throw in the towel, to believe that these truths are too good to be true, and they are actually unrealistic. I think one of the first things that goes when we're in those seasons we lose sight of the bigger picture. The blinders go up, and all we tend to see is what's right in front of us. And this, really, we think we understand it, but, but what we see, it, we're interpreting it with our voices of doubt and whispering lies. And in that state, we become prone to false promises of glory. You hear these voices, look this way, and you'll find the change you've always wanted. Listen to my secret of success. Model yourself after my way of achieving power. Become like me in my strength and wealth, and transformation will come your way. Change course. Try something else. You will receive the glory you want. You will receive the transformation you want. But Paul, have anyone, he knows these feelings of doubt and discouragement. And he knows the danger that comes with it. And what does he do? He proclaims Christ to you and to me. This is not something on the surface that we say, okay, that's true, but you don't really understand the deep, dark issues that are facing me. No, Paul is at the depths. And out of that, he's saying, here's what you need to hear. The road to transformation is not the road of physical power, of human glory and strength, but it is through beholding Christ crucified, buried, risen, and glorified. By his spirit, may we continue looking upon him until we become like him fully. Would you pray with me? God, I confess that um, even as, as I talk through these Lord, that, the, the, that these realities sometimes feel um, pretty theoretical. They're beautiful, but I, I often go about my life not making the connection to how, how these impact the way I see and the way I live. So I pray that your spirit right now would take your word, would, would open our eyes to this glorious reality that we are unveiled before you, that we see you, that you see us completely. And because of Jesus, God, we're not consumed. But the, the opposite is true. We're being transformed. And so this very moment in time, 
In the year 2019 in Big Rapids, God, you are about the work of transforming us as we look to you into the image of Jesus Christ. Would you build our confidence? Would you uh, strengthen us in our doubts and in our discouragements? God, we need you. We pray, Father, um, that you would do your work uh, of helping this body uh, to see the glory of the Lord in each other. And then as they see that, as they do that hard work, Lord, that, 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 that each, each one of these folks would become glory reflectors and they would turn that back to point to you. We pray that your gospel would, would go forth in clarity and in power and in simplicity from this pulpit and into the city around them. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.